This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beach on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, a landmark decision to block the sale of land in Solomon Islands is prompting people to think differently about their inherited wealth. Everyone wants fast cash, yeah? They want to see money as soon as possible, so they sell the land. And money issues also a concern as Timor-Leste prepares for its parliamentary election. Our spending level has been growing tremendously. So now we are reaching a point that our spending level has gone beyond the our revenues. Meanwhile, Australia is spending big on security in the Pacific, but not everyone is happy with that outcome. I'm uh, a lot more um, hesitant about this investment and the further militarization of the military in the in the Pacific. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, Papua New Guinea's foreign minister has stepped aside one week ahead of a historic visit by U.S. President Joe Biden and India's Prime Minister. Justin Kichenko bowed down to political pressure after public backlash over his daughter's TikTok video that showcased their lavish government-funded trip to London. For me to step aside is the right thing to do so that uh, we can clear the air and make sure that all these issues that have arose from misinformation are finally sorted out once and for all. Joining us now to talk about this political fallout is PNG reporter Scott Wider. Good morning to you, Scott. Good morning. Um, So what has been the reaction this dropped uh, Friday night? Um, How has it been over the weekend to Mr. Kachenko's decision to step aside? Yeah, the debate is still going on. There's a lot of criticism still on, on social media. A lot of people saying this is not over yet, even though uh, you've uh, stepped aside as foreign minister. Um, people still want the people still are demanding a resignation and an investigation of some sort into the spendings uh, that happened for that trip to London and the spending in Port Moresby. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, anger still out there. Oh, interesting. So people aren't quite satisfied with this um, call to step aside. Um, they they want more. They want a resignation. Is it? Yes, they want the resignation. Um, the and, and the primary reason for this is is the uh, I guess two things. One was the how they viewed as the insensitive insensitive video, uh, and and just something that was out of taste in relation to the the TikTok video by uh, Justin Jachenko's daughter. Uh, so that was the first thing, you know, the lavish, uh, the portrayal of a lavish lifestyle at, at the expense of taxpayers. That was what uh, made people really angry. And the second part was uh, Justin Jachenko's reaction to it. Now that uh, to many had very, you know, uh, racist undertones, according to many people who who expressed anger. Uh, so all that put together uh, have, has caused people to react in that manner. Yes, yes. So let's talk about that because it was that um, primitive animals comment that Mr. Kachenko made. I mean, um, you know, Mr. Kachenko is, is a, a white man, a white Australian who I believe got um, Papua New Guinean citizenship in 2016. But is that that, that he said he called critics of um, his daughter's videos primitive animal, animals, but um, can you explain why that term, that primitive animals term, was so um, 
um, so outrageous for so many, so many people there. Yeah, it, it, it's many people viewing it as, you know, a, 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 a word that was used previously on, on many of, of people in Papua New Guinea, and it, it's, it's offensive to many people. Uh, so to have a minister uh, say that and say that very publicly, and although it wasn't directed at everyone, it was directed at the trolls who were, who were harassing her daughter, uh, his daughter, uh, that that cut across a lot of sectors and, and many people reacted to it negatively. Mm, yes. Well, let's hear Justin Chicheco during his um, announcement uh, last week talk about what he actually meant when he used that term primitive animals. The comments that I made on ABC were, were directed solely, solely at those cyber trolls, those internet trolls, those keyboard warriors that go out there and try and destroy lives of people. That was uh, Foreign Minister Kichenko. Well, he has stepped aside from his foreign ministership. Um, I understand that there were protests there that sort of used that primitive animals as a, as a sort of cry for change. Um, how big were the protests there in Port Moresby uh, last week? Uh, it, it, there was a crowd of students that uh, tried to walk from the University of Papua New Guinea to Parliament. So uh, along the way, police had to stop them and uh, try to negotiate with them and, and just basically ask them to go back to school. Uh, so it, it, it was a relatively large crowd. If you, I mean, given the time, in, the time that in, it was organized, so it was a relatively big crowd for that, that very short time. Uh, it started with a banner that was placed outside the university gate. The intention, I, I think, initially was not too much, but to at least express some dissatisfaction over the comments uh, by Tichenko. Uh But that eventually turned out to a march uh, headed to parliament. Uh, and you mentioned there, Scott, that there are calls for an investigation into the trip. Obviously, this this lavish spending highlighted in the daughter's uh, TikTok video was at the centre of this furor. Do we know from the government if they if they've talked about you know l- um, leading an investigation into the spending on this trip for the coronation? Yeah, I- interestingly, there's been no reaction from the Ombudsman Commission, uh, and the Ombudsman Commission has been very quiet on this. Uh, and and people are asking if there will be an investigation. They're, they're kind of prompting the Ombudsman Commission to come out and say something or release a statement saying, yes, we will investigate, or they, these are the areas that we will look into. Uh, so far, there's been nothing. Uh, so like, they feel that uh, Justin Chichenko has come out and uh, said that he will uh, step aside, but that's they, they feel it's not punishment enough uh, mm. or that it, it's not uh, satisfactory enough for just him to step aside. Yes, and perhaps not getting to the heart of the problem, which is, of course, that um, outrage over the, the spending and, and um, the sort of inequality that that might showcase. Um, well, it's very interesting to see where this might all go and if a resignation might be on the cards for the foreign minister there. Scott Wider, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. No worries. That was Papua New Guinean reporter Scott Wider talking to us about that fallout of Foreign Minister Kichenko, who has stepped aside as foreign minister following that uh, TikTok video from his daughter. 
You're listening to Pacific Beat this Monday morning. The Australian government's focus on funding security in the Pacific region doesn't sit well with one Pacific Island activist. In its federal budget released last week, the government had pledged to put $1.4 billion over four years into security in the region to be used for things like training police personnel and donating patrol boats. Vasila Bua-Dromo, who's a co-lead of the NGO Urgent Action Fund Asia and Pacific, says that money could go elsewhere. I'm you know, very, very happy that there has been an um, increase in budget to the Pacific Islands. I think that uh, the three things that kind of uh, stood out for me was the uh, investment into infrastructure, which I think is brilliant if the uh, infrastructure investment is in ports, telecommunications, water, education, health. I think that's wonderful because that's uh, you know very much needed here in the Pacific. I'm uh, a lot more um, hesitant about this investment and the further militarization of the military in the in the Pacific. You know, that's the Pacific doesn't need that more militarization. And I think that the history that, for example, Fiji has had with a heavily invested military has meant that the military has been, you know, unconstitutionally involved in the um, governance of the Fiji government, you know, almost now for about 20 years. So I'm, you know, I'm, have reservations about those investments. And I think that those investments should be redirected into things like health, um, education, and about how to um, improve economic stability within um, within the Pacific Island countries. A lot of commentators have said this comes in light of, you know, geopolitical tensions with um, China. Do you think that's justified? I, I don't think it's justified because I think that what it does is, yes, it protects Australia's interests, particularly the investment into the military, but it doesn't necessarily in the long term for Pacific nations pr- protect our interest. I think it, what it does is that it embeds, you know, militarization into, into our region. And I think that that investment will be better served if it was redirected to sectors which will help with uh, you know the prosperity of a country which will help with the well-being of a country rather than looking at it from the perspective of you know military security i think that there is a need to um invest in the police because i think that you know law and order issues uh is an important uh an important investment within this region and i think the australian government has um for years um provided that kind of training to police and i think that's that's definitely an area of investment the military is is an area i'm 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 quite concerned about Vanuatu's finance minister has said to me this week that after twin cyclones there, the um, military helped the Australian military. So is it not fair to say that a strong security force has a place? There are other institutions that can provide that kind of services and doesn't have to be the military. I think that, you know, uh, I think that strengthening, say, for example, and building a stronger um, a coastal services is much needed, considering that we live in a region with the largest ocean in the world with so much resources. And I think that would be, uh, you know, like that would be an investment that better serves the region. It is short-sighted and that in the long term, it's going to create more problems for us as a region, therefore create more problems for Australia.
That was Vericilia Buadromo talking there to reporter Dubrovka Volodar. And on the question of Australia's foreign aid to the Pacific, we should note that in an earlier special budget released uh, back in October, the Albanese government did increase foreign aid to the Pacific by about $900 million. It's time to find out what's making news around the Pacific. And to do that, we're joined by reporter Carl Evans. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, Priyanka. I hope you enjoyed your weekend. Yes, I had a lovely weekend. It was uh, uncharacteristically sunny and beautiful for May, Melbourne May. Um, so I made full use of that. Hopefully you did as well, Carl. I very much did, yes. Um, but uh, things aren't looking sunny for uh, Vanuatu's prime minister. Well, perhaps not, because Ishmael Kalsakau sorry, has um, been officially uh, confirmed. Or the, the, the Speaker of Parliament there in Vanuatu has officially confirmed a vote of no confidence against him. Tell us uh, what's in store. That's right. So uh, a vote of no confidence, it seems, is in order and has actually been scheduled for debate this Friday. So... <clears throat> Excuse me. This is reported by the Vanuatu Daily Post and comes after that motion was submitted against the PM last Friday, I believe. The Speaker confirmed that nine signatures had signed the motion, uh, including the leader of the opposition, Bob Lofman, who, uh, who moved the motion personally. And have they given any reasons to why they're taking this vote of no confidence uh, action? Yeah, so according to the Post, there's several. Uh, they include concerns over the government's national priorities outlined uh, in the four-year plan. Uh, there's also allegations of uh, undue influence by government officials. And there's also pretty big opposition, uh, sorry, opposition concern over the country's security pact with Australia. Um, the opposition believes it may compromise Vanuatu's independence and sovereignty, and they could actually prevent that deal from being ratified, as we discussed uh, last week. Yes, indeed. Yes, there is an ABC article about that. And it is interesting to see that that could have played into this decision there by the opposition to launch this vote of no confidence. Um, they, they also had um, some words to say earlier about um, Australia-funded flights, private flights from um, between Port Villa and uh, Canberra. You might have remembered that um, the Prime Minister was invited to Canberra to um, address Parliament there. And, and the opposition did have some things to say about about that trip as well. Um, but, I mean, it is important to note as well that votes of no confident aren't unusual for Vanuatu. And uh, as you mentioned, it's scheduled for debate, did you say, this Friday? This Carl? Friday, yes. Um, so it all depends if the numbers are there. But we will see that, that I mean, very early into his term, um, Prime Minister Ishmael uh, Kalsakau is facing, yeah, this, this no confidence vote. So interesting to see if he can... I guess get out of it and and build um, strength in in his uh, his team, in his government. Um, now let's head to Fiji, where the Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka there has apologised to the Indo Fijian community for the coup of 1987. The coup that he led, isn't that right, Kyle? Yes, that's correct. So uh, he actually made this confession at, at the reconciliation service held over the weekend, and it was reported by the Fiji Village. Um, he said he's not making the confession as the Prime Minister of Fiji, and he does not hold the government accountable for his actions in 1987. Instead, he's making it on his behalf and on behalf of those that took part with him. Uh, he confessed it was wrong and hurt many people of Fiji, particularly the Indo-Fijian community, and he finished by saying that uh, he prays for God to empower both sides to forgive each other. 
Yeah, uh, he has apologised for the coup before, of course, um, particularly as he was, um, you know, during the campaign and questions were around um, his leadership as a, as a former coup leader. Um, he was up against a, also a coup leader in Frank Bainimarama as well. But um, there were concerns about that. And he has apologised even before that, that time. Um, so I guess this is reiterating that, but also, um, I guess, doing doing it on behalf of those who took part with him, um, as you said, Kyle. Um, very interesting. The As we know, those relations between Indo-Fijian communities there in, in Fiji and um, Itoke, indigenous Fijians, um, are, are quite centre of political issues and, mm. you know, um, I guess both sides sort of um, throw throw the grenade that the other side doesn't treat Indo-Fijians or Itoke communities um, quite as well as they should. Um, so interesting to see and perhaps hear what the Indo-Fijian community think about this particular um, step made by Fiji's Prime Minister. Yeah, it's definitely an intent to, to, to keep on reinforcing that message, it seems like, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and in unity, and and that Fiji is a multicultural community, and um, you know harmony and and equality between everyone is is very important for all politicians, I'm sure. Um, now to some sporting news. It's the last, uh, second last round of the World Rugby Seven Series. Well, that f- wrapped out a few hours ago. Um, so, how did the Pacific teams do? Um, yeah, unfortunately, not so well. Uh, New Zealand, however, claimed gold, both in the men and women's. No surprises there. They seem to do that <laughs> most weeks these days. But um, but yeah, as for Fiji and Samoa, uh, both failed to place. Uh, Samoa won two of their five games, but lost their ninth place playoff against Spain. Uh, Fiji, unfortunately, also failed to make any noise, um, losing early games to South Africa and France, actually drawing with the US. They did beat Germany, uh, Uruguay and Spain to finish off the tournament, though, but but little too late. Uh, too little, too late there. Um, it actually marked the tenth tournament this season uh, that Fiji failed to place, which is something like the first time that's happened since about 2010, I believe, or just that marked the longest period. Um, it's actually it's also put the Olympics in question as well. Oh, yeah. uh, they're still currently in fourth and hold a. a, a somewhat comfortable lead over Australia, but you'd, you'd want to see them play well in London just to put that beyond doubt in them, which is going to be the final final round of the series. Uh, the Fiji women, meanwhile, they finished sixth. Uh, they won their first two games, but lost uh, lost their next four. Oh, that um, that's a, a shame, particularly about the Olympic bid there, um, Kyle. Um, did the Pacific do any better in the Super Rugby? Uh, not so much, unfortunately, Priyanka. Yeah, the, the Indrua, they fell 34-14 to the force, but uh, they, they competed pretty well. Moana Pacifica, however, they, they had a, a, a suffered a somewhat crushing loss, 71-22 to oh, the dear. Hurricanes. Yeah, and uh, not good news in the rugby league either. It was, it was you know, pretty optimistic going in for the PNG Hunters. They were they won their last two at home. They were trying to make it a three-game winning streak, but ended up falling 54-4 to in Townsville against the Blackhawks. So I don't think a lot of people... People would have seen that one coming, but uh, yeah, not not a match that uh, Stanley Tepan will be very impressed by. No, not not um, not really indeed. But um, are there any chances um, for redemption coming up soon? When are the next? Um, you said it was the second last round of World Rugby. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So London is coming up in the next couple of weeks, I believe. Um, don't have that in front of me at the moment, but uh, yeah, so that, that'll be the last round of the series. You'd think New Zealand's. Yeah, I think they've they've pretty much wrapped up gold at this point. I believe um, Argentina. I think they're currently sitting in second. They've had a they've had a really good run. France as well. 
like I said, yeah, in the in the men anyway, Fiji, they're currently looking like they're going to hold on to fourth, but uh, I think they're about 13 points ahead of Australia at the moment. But look, they, they're going to still want to do well, I think, in the last round, just to put that beyond doubt. Yes, and um, they need to be in fourth, is that right, to make it into the Olympics? That's right, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, Although so. I think there was a, a, a slight wrinkle, given that the Olympics is held uh, in France, I think the home team get automatic entry. So it might actually be the top five uh, this year, I okay. believe. There might actually be another team on top of that. All right. So hopefully it gives them a bit more wiggle room. Yes, but, that's um, right. They, oh, fingers crossed they pull it out. And uh, yes, it would be a shame to see Olympics without the Fiji Sevens competing in that. Um, so fingers crossed that that does happen. Uh, Kyle, thank you for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. That was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific, but don't go anywhere. Coming up after this break, we'll be hearing from uh, land activists in Solomon Islands talking about what they want to see to make sure customary land stays within families and in customary owners, really. We'll hear that coming up. Nijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijam Footy stars. Nijam Footy. Nijam Footy. Monday evenings at 6 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host of Pacific Beat, Priyanka Srinivasan. And as you've been hearing here on ABC Radio Australia, there's lots more new stories, new, new programs going to air right here on this uh, on these airwaves. But if you have an idea for a show, for an audio series, for anything that you want to hear on ABC Radio Australia, do get in touch. We are at ABC Pacific. You can also um, contact us via email, um, pacific at abc.net.au, I believe, is the email address. Do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Um, there are a lot of new shows um, coming up. Maybe maybe you have an idea for, for um, you know, something that the sports show should ca- tackle or sometimes something here on Pacific Meet that you think we should tackle get in touch with us um and we can we can try and make your make your vision a reality Um, But first, a young Solomon Islander is urging her government and tribal elders to work with young people to secure customary land for future generations. Regina Leppings calls a follow a landmark Court of Appeal decision overturning the sale of government land to an Asian businessman. As Caroline Atiraman reports, the case has put the spotlight on land sales in the country. As a young Solomon Islander, Regina Lepping says the demand for land is growing while the supply of it is decreasing rapidly. She says government needs to step in and work with tribal leaders to prevent the sale of customary lands. Everyone wants fast cash. Yeah, They want to see money as soon as possible. So they sell the land or they started arguing and fighting over land and not really thinking about, you know, investing in the land. There's been increased attention on land dealings following a court of appeals decision removing land from an Asian businessman, which was returned back to the government. The courtroom win has been praised by politicians like Peter Kenny Loria Jr. Uh, that land in particular is very important for civil aviation. Uh, because so close to the runway, 
uh, in terms of um, the, the Honiara International Airport runway, and uh, could have been in violation of some international civil aviation uh, agreements. So I think in that case, it's also great uh, to have uh, that land uh, sorted out in the manner it has been. While this particular case involved government land obtained illegally, the Commissioner of Lands, Alan McNeil, says they do have problems with customary land. That's land owned by landowners. What I've found in some cases is that there has been a less than transparent process involved in, for example, customary land being acquired or even registered land being transferred and perhaps not all of the parties who own the land um, are aware of those. And so those are the types of situations that can end up in the courts and where if it's registered land, I become one of the defendants to provide any evidence that we've got on file here. But it's, it's not an argument that they've got against my office. It's an argument that landowners have got with each other. As for Regina Lapping, she believes protecting the land and making the most of it is priority. And I don't think most of our people in the village, our, our tribe, you know, the landowners, they are aware of it. They're, they're not really aware of the damages that will occur to the land if you know, they just keep on arguing one fast cash. So um, that is very sad because um, they're the ones, they are the guardians of the land. And sometimes it's so easy for, for foreigners or someone else outside who's well-educated and know all about this, come in to these vulnerable areas, to these vulnerable people. And sometimes, you know, they lie to them and they take the land and make them to agree. Sometimes there's no agreement, but they sign their deal. That was Solomon Islander, Regina Lepping, ending that report from Caroline Tierman. As Timor-Leste prepares to head to the polls this week, the country is facing an uncertain economic future. Political instability, the COVID-19 pandemic, a large flood in 2021, rising government spending and declining oil and gas revenue have prompted warnings Timor-Leste could be heading towards a fiscal cliff. So what are the major parties promising to do about it? Marion Farr caught up with independent policy analyst Gutierriano Nieves in the capital, Dili, who says it's a big worry. It is the biggest concern right now that I think personally and uh, I think among the people who knows that that, that this is one of the biggest concerns and for some kind of long-term uncertainty for the country. The reason why it is like that, because since the beginning, I mean, we have been told that um, we don't have much oil and oil is um, non-renewable resources. And that's a very, very basic part. But over the last few years, the problems with us is that our spending level has been growing tremendously. So now we are reaching a point that our spending level has gone beyond the our revenues. Now with the, the with the fact that uh, the current oil production is going to end in this year, so then by the next year we will only depend on the um, the investment return of the petroleum fund in the international market, and that puts the country in a little bit like risk, in and highly risk situation, and also uh, uncertain uh, situation because we don't know how the international global market. We are not sure 
whether uh, the petroleum fund will be uh, will have a positive uh, return or it can be negative. This election is being seen as a battle between two major parties, the CNRT led by Shanana Guzmao and Fretelin led by Mari Alkatiri. How do these two leaders differ in their approach to the economy and their plans to lead Timor-Leste forward? I mean, in terms of major issues, both parties recognise the fact that we are dependent too much on the petroleum. They also recognize the mismanagement in the public uh, resources. They also talk a lot about the uh, economic diversification and through agriculture, through um, talk about tourism and uh, like manufacturing, something like that. But if you dig deeper, I don't really see, at least at this point, I haven't seen any convincing like difference between them. To be honest, most of the political campaign in Timor-Leste tends to be so abstract and superficial. I don't see big difference now. There is a big um, one only, I think, on the stand of the greater sunrise. That's a, that's a, some things that um, seem to be different, but I think on, on, on general, in general, they are still uh, talk about to bring pipeline to Timor-Leste. Yeah, so you mentioned greater sunrise uh, there, the greater sunrise oil and gas field. Um, <laughs> it's being seen as an economic lifeline for Timor-Leste. Do you think that Greater Sunrise, the Greater Sunrise oil and gas project is essential to Timor-Leste's survival in the short term though? I mean, what would happen to Timor-Leste if Greater Sunrise doesn't eventuate? It is important, but it is not only the solution, uh, the magic solution, even for the short term. There are other mechanisms, other, other, I think, options that Timor-Leste needs to, to look at is Aside from um, maximizing the domestic revenues, which I think there is a space for that, but I also see that Timor-Leste needs to revise its current state spending level. There are a lot of uh, room for that to, uh, to cut or to uh, reduce unnecessary or unproductive spending. What, what are the key options for economic diversification in Timor-Leste in terms of raising enough short term revenue to keep to, to keep the economy afloat right now um overseas employment uh, and remittance from the overseas employment um we have also i think uh, coffee agriculture and particularly coffee export and also tourism but it tends i mean the general trend in the last few years has been declining but i think we are still missing when in terms of policy intervention that's why I think we didn't get it right at this point. So we need to think really carefully about what kind of policy to, that we need to pursue or to, to develop uh, those, uh, those sectors. How important is this election for Timor-Leste's economy and economic future? It is important, as I said before, at least to give a sense of normalcy for the country and also we are really hoping that this election will bring the government that will provide the real solution. Can we really expect much of a change in policy and direction given that the main contenders that are likely to win this election are people who have been in government and in various positions of power for such a long time? We're seeing sort of the same political figures cycling through the parliament and the government and, and, and various 
different positions with not a lot of new uh, leaders coming into the mix. So can we really expect much change? Well, that's a good, that's a very, very good question. We still hope, I mean, although we, we knew that, we recognize that, uh, and, and I mean, I can see personally, I, I don't see that uh, from the political campaign, at least uh, until now. The promises that they have uh, sometimes to be uh, abstract and superficial, but I I still hope, despite all, despite of uh, I'm a little bit pessimistic uh, with uh, with the current campaign, but I'm hoping that uh, with the new government, uh, things will uh, will change. That was independent policy analyst Guterriano Neves speaking there with Marion Farr. And a reminder, Timor Leste will head to the polls this Sunday. Uh, I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. This is Pacific Beat. Hope you're having a lovely Monday morning. The seasonal shortages of local vegetables mean many Pacific communities have to replace nutritious traditional diets with energy-dense and nutritionally poor food. As a result, the Pacific region has one of the highest rates of non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, in the world. But protected cropping projects hope to change this and introduce a new sector to the fruit and vegetable market, premium produce. Lucy Cooper reports. The Sigatoga Valley in Fiji is dotted with small productive farms and market gardens, which supply much of the island with fresh produce. This area in Sigatoga, we call it a a salad bowl of Fiji. This is one of the uh, lucrative and a very important area in terms of agriculture. This is where uh, the key area that supplies vegetables all around in Fiji. David Hicks, a Sigatoka local, says the farmers in the region are subsistence farmers, often relying on selling excess products in the markets to make ends meet. Just one hour up the road is tourist hotspot Nandi, where glossy resorts paint a very different picture of Fiji. The food served in these resorts don't actually come from local farmers. At the moment, because vegetable production in, um, in country is very seasonal, the resorts are importing a lot of vegetables from New Zealand and Australia to uh, supply to their guests. Um, and obviously tourists in those uh, those resorts are after the sort of quality of product that they might be used to at home. But this is changing. Projects in Pacific nations are working to introduce protected cropping systems. A five-year project titled Integrating Protecting Cropping Systems into High-Value Vegetable Value Chains in the Pacific and Australia has just wrapped up. Project leader and professor of horticultural science from CQ University, Phil Brown, said the aim of the project was to simply grow fruit and veggies year-round. The technology in itself is, is wonderful, but it's the real intention was um, that, that system change whereby um, that technology would allow farmers and smallholders uh, to produce vegetables year-round. Uh, and that, that would also then open up opportunities for, um, for those smallholders to supply product into, into new markets and, and potentially into higher value markets. David is the project coordinator for this protected cropping initiative in Fiji. A new venture in the country, he said compared to countries like Australia, using protected cropping structures can dramatically change the lives of farmers. In terms of uh, looking at the holistic approach, in terms of economy, reduce the bill, import bill. That's one of the key. It also reduces imports bill for the government of Fiji. 
And also, not only that, it also improves the living standard of the, uh, the, for every household. Improve the living standard of every household, you're able to, the, multi, the effect, it multiplies. It also affects, positively contributed to the improvement of uh, education, support the education, uh, able to build a concrete house from bamboo raft to concrete house, and able to buy the car because they enjoy a premium price during off-season. Protected cropping essentially puts an umbrella on fruit and veggies, thus controlling the amount of sunlight and rainfall the crops underneath receive. Phil said these simple things create generational change. We've seen examples with some of the farmers we've worked with. Uh, what might sound fairly simple to us, but such a huge impact for them. Um, things like being able to send their kids to um, to, to one of the better schools in uh, in the country um, changes the, the it's a generational change for for the family. Um, being able to buy a car so that they can take their produce into the local marketplace instead of having to catch um, um, uh, public transport. And, and public transport's not like we consider it here. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, infrequent and, and uh, not, um, not comfortable experience to get from, from the farm to town, um, particularly if you're taking all your produce there to sell at the marketplace. So having a vehicle really makes a difference. Um, adding new rooms into your house so that instead of the whole family sleeping in one room, we've got separate rooms for, for, for the kids and the, and the parents. It, it, little things like that, which a little bit of money can, um, can do, are actually huge impacts for, for those families. It's really quite hard to fathom how protecting crops can give farmers the opportunity to go from a bamboo to a concrete house. But this impact is not lost on Professor Phil Brown. It's one of the most enjoyable parts of, of doing agricultural research for development, um, that you, you really are making an impact to people's lives, to, to, to whole communities. And it's, it, it's, it's an impact that is long-lasting. Um, it, lives change, perspectives change, the, the, the skills and capacity that exists within communities uh, changes through the, the activities that are undertaken in projects like this that, that, that really you know, shift the, the pattern of life in those areas. The protected cropping systems in Australia are advanced, sophisticated systems and, like any project, it isn't one-size-fits-all. Phil said that you have to mould your work to the country's strengths. One of the concepts we, we developed in the project to try to um, encourage the farmers to adopt protected cropping was to... Um, we, we, we introduced an analogy of um, the local cultural custom, the, the kava drinking, um, and so that the traditional kava bowls uh, in Fiji um, are, are a bowl with, with legs to, to hold it up. So we, so we introduced this concept of um, protected cropping being like the kava bowl with four legs um, where we needed to have you know, the, the, the right structure so that the, the different ways we might build one. The project found key knowledge gaps in the understanding of protected cropping. To fill these gaps, a training manual has been designed, which David Hicks hopes will see adoption rates climb. The, the key issue here is the knowledge. Without a right tool, you, you, the, you cannot improve the adoption rate. We design from step one to step two, three, four, so that they can, for them just to understand the concept, the principle of a protector crop. The two key functions of the protector crop is to control the direct contact of sunlight 
and also to control the amount of rainfall that hit the crops. The future is seemingly bright for protected cropping systems in Fiji, not only improving the health of the community by growing nutritionally dense produce, but also by uplifting the lives of farmers and their community. So it's no surprise the Fijian government has gotten on board. What we are really excited by in this project is that we've we've got, um, uh, in, in particularly in Fiji, the, the Ministry of Agriculture um, really coming on board and picking up some of the training programs we've developed and making them their own, um, twisting them around to, to, to fit the way that they wanted to, live, to deliver them so we can sit back now and watch as, as development continues to occur without... Um, Australian aid money uh, needing to continue to flow into the country to prop it up. That was Professor of Horticultural Science from CQ University, Phil Brown, ending that report from Lucy Cooper. You're listening to Pacific Beat. In Samoa, fafine and fa'afa'ata'ama are widely accepted in local communities as third and fourth genders, but not by law. That means they are often left out of governance decisions that can impact their lives. It's the case even in emergency situations where despite Fafine's traditional roles to care for children and the elderly, they can be excluded from the disaster planning process. Yuki Kihara is a Samoan artist who identifies as Fafine says that such exclusions don't recognise the existing resilience of Pacific communities and culture. People are just not ready to unplug from the matrix, you know, to comes into terms with the reality of their culture is that indigenous cultures have third, fourth or even a fifth gender. We've always been there. Yuki Kahara is an artist and she's also a fa'afafine from Samoa. So fa'afafine in the manner of a woman used to describe those like myself, assigned male at birth who expressed their gender in a, ma- uh, in a feminine way. And according to Yuki, this identification has a lot of flow-on effects, including around planning for disasters. Uh, my name is Yuki Kihara. I'm an interdisciplinary artist uh, of Samoan and Japanese descent, and I currently reside in the village of Mount Vaya uh, in the island of Upolu in the independent state of Samoa. Okay, so in Samoa, there are four culturally recognized genders. So there's Tane, which is a cisgender man, Fafine, which is a cisgender woman. Fafafine is made up of uh, two compound words, so fa meaning in the manner of, and Fafine meaning woman. So Fafafine in the manner of a woman used to describe those like myself, assigned male at birth who expressed their gender in a, ma- uh, in a feminine way. And we also have Fatsama, uh, those assigned female at birth who expressed their gender in a, a masculine way. And then together we make up four of the genders in Samoa. However, Fa'afafine and Fa'atama, we are not legally recognized. And then so the reason why we're not legally recognized is because of the series of uh, colonialisms um, and uh, uh, religious enforcement that uh, puts uh, forward and prioritize uh, to, uh, you know, for colonized peoples uh, to identify with uh, Western binary divisions of man and woman. Mm. When we look at the uh, policies and legislations around um, climate change and disaster risk management, a lot of the times, uh, you know, these um, policies and legislations are geared towards 
man-woman binary decision uh, divisions that um, that doesn't actually recognize third and the fourth sexes um, of uh, Samoan culture. Traditionally, our roles as Fafafine and Fatsama, we are the caretakers of young children and the elderly. And then those are the same uh, roles that we do in the event of climate change and uh, disaster risk management. Mm. So to take our roles away from us that was culturally designated, you know, into the Western binary system of man and woman mm. doesn't actually recognize the resilience of the culture and then how everybody contributes to the to the sustainability and the recovery of our traditions and our culture. That was uh, Samoan artist Yuki Kihara speaking there to ABC's Fred Hooper from Pacific Prepared. And you can catch that show every Friday here on ABC Radio Australia at 8.30 Papua New Guinea time. Tune in to SBS Samoan News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoan News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoan News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. And that uh, just about brings us to the end of this episode of Pacific Beat for your Monday morning. Just a reminder of today's lead story. We discussed Papua New Guinea's foreign minister, Justin Chichenko, and his decision to step aside from politics following the outrage prompted by his daughter's TikTok video and his remarks denouncing those critics. Local reporter Scott Wyde said the public, public, though, still aren't appeased. People still are demanding a resignation and an investigation of some sort into the spendings uh, that happened for that trip to London and the spending in Port Moresby. We also explored why the Australian government's $1.4 billion security pledge doesn't sit well with some Pacific activists. The Pacific doesn't need that, more militarization. The history that, for example, Fiji has had with uh, heavily invested military has meant that the military has been, you know, unconstitutionally involved in governance. That was local activist Virisile Buandromo. You can catch all those stories on ABC Pacific. I'll be with you tomorrow. Until then, have a lovely day. Okay.